You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles. First of all, Acts 4, 23-31, and then also the first chapter of Hebrews. Peter and John had been doing their work. They had been preaching in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They had been seized by the priests and the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders were trying to figure out what to do with them. But they couldn't do anything with them. They threatened them and then eventually they had to let them go. You can see that in verse 21. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened with the lame man. Then we come to verse 23. Listen to God's Word and give careful attention to it. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed. They did what Your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable Your servants to speak Your word with great boldness. Stretch out Your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Let's also turn to Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have become your Father. Or again, I will be His Father and He will be My Son. And again, when God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. In speaking of the angels, He says, He makes His angels' winds, His servants' flames of fire. But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, Your God, has set You above Your companions by anointing You with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? text for the sermon this morning is Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Beloved congregation of Christ our Lord, It's something that goes right back to the very beginning, or at least shortly thereafter. The satanic lie was swallowed whole. You will be like God. The father of lies approached Adam and Eve in the garden and said, Adam and Eve, put God behind you. You don't need Him. Stand up on your own two feet. What's wrong with you? depending on God like that. Through history, the pattern has been repeated over and over again. Just take one event out of more recent history, the French Revolution of the 18th century, the late 18th century. During the French Revolution, there were a variety of revolutionaries, and some of them were atheists. And one of the slogans of the more atheistic revolutionaries was, no God, no master. We're free. We can do whatever we want. And many of the other revolutionaries in France during the French Revolution were what we called deists. They believed that God wound up the universe like a clock and then He just let it go and He he stood off at a distance and he, He lets it run. They called him the the God of reason and other things too. And this God of reason or whatever else you would want to call him, he doesn't care personally about us and about our lives, nor does he have any meaningful say about how we choose to live our lives. This emasculated God would not stand in the way of the French Revolution. And what about today? Here we are in 2007. Well, today you can go online and you can go to YouTube and you can see several hundred people 
in videos denying the Holy Spirit. They do this because they think that this is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit spoken of in passages like Mark 3. Well, they're wrong about that. And they think that by doing this, they're committing the unforgivable sin. They're wrong about that too. They think that they're sealing their eternal damnation. And you know what? They just don't care. Because they don't buy it. They don't believe it. But there's more happening than that. These people too are also swallowing the old lie. The same lie proclaimed throughout history. No God, no Master. Human beings are free to do whatever they want. Live however they choose. It's this age-old lie that we see in Psalm 2 as well. From the New Testament in Acts chapter 4, which we read a few moments ago, we know that David was the author of this psalm. David had a prophetic vision, and he recorded it for us in this psalm. And in that vision, God gave David a picture of the nations foolishly following the lie, the age-old lie. But more than that, he also showed him the Messiah who would do something about all this. And so I preached to you God's Word from Psalm 2 this morning with this theme, God reveals the folly of attempting to overthrow His rule. We'll consider four points, and they follow the general structure of the psalm. First of all, we'll consider the ruse of the rulers and their nations in verses 1 to 3. Second, the response of the Lord in verses 4 to 6. The report of the Messiah in verses 7 to 9. And then finally, in the last section, verses 10 to 12, we'll consider the reprimand of the psalmist. The psalm begins with a question. One about the peoples and the nations. In his prophetic vision, David sees them restless. He sees them itching for a fight. In fact, they are actively conspiring and plotting. According to the second verse, the kings and rulers of these nations are are right in there. They're also involved with this business. And this business is oriented as a ruse or a conspiracy against Yahweh. It's rebellion against Yahweh. The Lord with all capital letters, as you, you see it in the psalm, is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And they're, they're conspiring not only against Yahweh, but also against His anointed one. Literally, His Messiah. David begins by asking, why? Why would they do this? This doesn't make any sense. This is not wisdom. Certainly not the wisdom that introduces the book of Psalms in Psalm 1. Rather, this is total foolishness. Nothing good comes when people rise up against God and His rule. And the foolishness of all that is emphasized when the psalm says that the people's plot in vain. What they're planning to do, it's pointless. It's worthless. It's going to go nowhere. And making these sorts of plans, the, the nations, the peoples, and their kings are, are, are like the chaff that winds will blow away. 
I'll never be able to stand in God's judgment. These are the people who say, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their fetters. They look at Yahweh, what they've heard about Him, and they don't see a shepherd. They don't see a father. They see a tyrant. They believe that His decrees are repressive. His laws are either unjust or inadequate. His promises, well, you can't depend on them. And His threats? Well, what kind of a God is He? We don't have to take His threats seriously. And so what do you do with a tyrant? We throw him out and we set the people free. Revolution! Let the people do what is right in their own eyes. Just who are these these nations who are saying these things? These nations that David saw in his vision. Well, we know that in the Old Testament era, there were nations whose claims echo those found here in Psalm 2. One example of this can be found in Ezekiel 29. In Ezekiel 29, God promises judgment upon Egypt. One of the reasons is given in verse 9. Because you said, the Nile is mine. I made it. Egypt said, forget about Yahweh. He's not the Creator. He's not the Lord and Master of all that is. That's not who He is. We are the Master. We are the Creator. We're going to throw off the chains. Now remember that at certain points in its history, Egypt was exposed to Yahweh and His revelation. Just think of the exodus and the plagues that preceded it. It wasn't like the the people of Egypt could claim ignorance. Oh, Yahweh, we, we never heard of Him before. They couldn't plead ignorance. But it wasn't only the foreign nations that did this sort of thing. Listen to what Jeremiah 2, verse 20 says about the people of Israel and and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. That was Jeremiah 2.20. What about Jeremiah 5.5? So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God, but with one accord. They too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. So there wasn't only the nations, people like Egypt. Also, the people of Israel were notorious for being among those nations which conspired and plotted in vain. God's own people were acting foolishly and rising up against Yahweh and His Messiah. And all of this culminated, it climaxed in the events leading up to the death of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, the believers directly applied the words of Psalm 2 to what happened with Christ. They quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer and they said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So we had Herod, the Edomite. We had Pontius Pilate, the Roman. 
along with an assortment of other Romans and Jews, all of them conspiring together to rise up against Christ and against His reign. They would not have Jesus of Nazareth as king. They would not recognize His royal power, His rights, His prerogatives. Even the people of God who'd been given all the promises, who'd been given all the prophecies about this Messiah, should have known better. They too rebelled. They would sooner live under the weight of all sorts of man-made laws and additions to God's law than submit to the Messiah. And that brings us to today and the people of God. It's very easy for us to look outside the church and see all sorts of people on YouTube and wherever else who are rising up against God. What about us? Listen to the words of our Savior, loved ones. In Matthew eleven twenty to 30 Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Loved ones, come to Christ and you'll find rest. And yes, it's true. He will lay His yoke upon you. The yoke was a, a bar that would be placed on cattle so that the cattle could get to work. It's not very comfortable for the, for the cattle. Lord Jesus says He will lay His yoke upon you. But He promises that it's an easy yoke. And it is a light burden compared to what you'll find if you go your own way. Do your own thing. Be your own person. The way of Matthew 11, 28-30 is the way of wisdom. The way of the nations in the first verses of Psalm 2, that's the way of foolishness. Why? David says. And why? God says. Why would you want to do that? Pretending to cast off God's rule one way or another. Pointless and futile. You will live under God's rule. All of us live under God's rule, whether we like it or not. But those who accept it and those who recognize His rule, they will experience it as a blessing and as a, a light and easy burden. What does God think of these nations and rulers who don't accept and don't recognize His rule and, and that of His Messiah? That's what we find in the next few verses, in, in verses 4-6. to six. David tells us that God is the one enthroned in heaven. In other words, He is the supreme ruler of the universe, regardless of what these puny little people might think. God looks at this foolishness, and he laughs. In fact, in his prophetic vision, God not only, David not only sees God laughing, but also making fun of them, mocking them, scoffing at them. These people are fools. What do they think they're doing? Their rebellion is as laughable as the man who tries to build a castle out of water. 
God not only thinks that these people are laughable, the rebellion is directed against Him. And so it arouses His anger and wrath. David sees God rebuking them and speaking to them. He sees God terrifying them with a declaration. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, he says. Now remember that God's throne was on Zion. In the tabernacle, and later on also in the, in the temple, in the holy of holies, or the most holy place, the ark with the mercy seat was an earthly representation of God's heavenly throne. And there, in the most holy place, on the ark, God's presence dwelt between the cherubim in a special way. So God's King, His anointed one, was sitting on God's throne on Zion. He would be God's vice-regent on earth. These words too, they speak prophetically about the person and work of Christ. People rose up against Christ and his anointed, but little little did they realize that they were in God's hands in so doing. Listen again to what it says in Acts 4.28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. No wonder God could laugh and, and mock them. Despite their best efforts, they, they thought they were rebelling, but actually, they were part of God's plan all along. They were in His hands. They actually played a vital role in Christ's work. And so when those people, they placed the placard on the cross announcing Jesus of Nazareth to be the King of the Jews, they didn't realize that they were God's messengers announcing the truth. They thought they were mocking God. They thought they were mocking Christ. Really, it was the other way around. And their foolish unbelief and rebellion is reason for these nations and their kings to be afraid. Because Christ's kingship not only involves a powerful reign, but also a terrifying judgment. And He carried out an initial installment of that judgment in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. Terrible suffering preceded and followed. And if you want to know how bad it was, there's a book by the Jewish historian Josephus called The Wars of the Jews. And the last few chapters of that book describe the, the sufferings of that time in great detail. It was an awful, awful time. The days of God's vengeance. They would not have Christ as King. And that was the price they paid. Now that judgment came especially upon the Jews, but God promises a judgment for all mankind at the last day. And when that last day comes, those who have accepted and those who have recognized King Jesus and His reign, they will rejoice. It will be a day that we're eagerly looking forward to. But those who have gone their own way and done their own thing, they will have ample reason to be terrified of God's wrath. The great King who sits at God's right hand will come again to judge the living and the dead. The psalm goes on in verses 7-9 to, to report the words of this Messiah. 
In his vision, David hears the Messiah speaking the decree of Yahweh. Yahweh declared that He was His Son, that it was on that day that He was begotten by God. Now, it wasn't unusual for kings in those days to be described as sons of God. It was also done with the the people of Israel. However, this is the only place that we read about a king being begotten by God. This indicates that David is witnessing something here that is entirely unique. And the only way that we can make sense of this is by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. The New Testament applies these words in several places directly to Christ. One of those places is what we read from Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 to indicate Christ's unique glory. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. In Acts 13, Paul also sees these words as referring directly to Christ and particularly to His resurrection. From this, it would seem that David's prophetic vision here refers directly to Christ. He is both God's Messiah, His anointed one, and He is God's Son, begotten by the Father. But then someone might say, hold on one minute, Pastor. It says, today I have become your Father. That doesn't work because we believe that Christ is the eternal Son of God. So how can this be speaking about Christ? Are we going to become Jehovah's Witnesses? Believe that there was a specific time where Jesus Christ came into existence? That's a good question. The answer is in that in, in many times in the Bible, you have to listen carefully here, we find that a person or thing becomes, comes into being, when it is made known to be what it is. This is a rhetorical device. So just to make that clear, what that means, we can paraphrase the last part of verse 7, say it this way, I have this day declared that you are begotten by me. Declared. This is basically the same as saying, I have declared you to be my son today. This is also the way Paul understood this expression in Acts 13.33 when he, he says that the resurrection was the moment at which Christ was declared by God to be the Son of God. Now, he was certainly the, the Son of God before this, but at the resurrection, at the moment where His, his glorification was initiated, in his earthly ministry, God announced his status. The glorified and exalted Messiah reports in verses 8 and 9 that God has given him the right to rule over all the nations and the ends of the earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He'll rule them powerfully. That's indicated with the expression with an iron scepter. And when those people fall out of line, When they rebel, the same king will dash them to pieces like like a a piece of pottery. Nothing and no one will stand in His way. It's our Savior described here in this prophecy. And so when we read and when we sing this psalm, 
as we're going to again in a few moments, we think of Him. And we think of His rule. But there's more. Because we are united to Him by true faith. When we believe in this Messiah. And the New Testament tells us that what is given to Him in His glorification will also be given to us in our glorification. In Revelation 2, we have the letter from Christ to the church at Thyatira. At the end of that letter, what is said about Christ in verse 9 of Psalm 2 is applied by our Savior, Jesus Christ, to the church at Thyatira. The church will rule the nations with an iron scepter. The church will dash them to pieces like pottery. Christ says in Revelation 2.26, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And then comes verse 9, Just as I have received authority from my Father. And so this psalm not only speaks about Christ, but also about those who have union with Him. Through this union, we too someday will reign with Him. That promise is here in seed form in this psalm. It only gets worked out later in the New Testament in, in in a fuller way, but it's already here as a seed. God promises that we will rule with Christ. You remember the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Well, just as Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter were together kings and queens over Narnia, so we will all be kings and queens in the age to come. We will rule over heaven and earth, and all of Christ's enemies will be subdued under His feet and our feet. There's a promise of future glory here. It's future glory. It's not to be expected here on this earth as we have it now. It's to be expected in the age to come. Future glory. And that encourages us in the brokenness of the here and now. And that brings us to the end of the psalm and a reprimand from David to the kings and rulers. Given what David saw in his prophetic vision, he he calls out to them. He says, get a hint. Have some wisdom, folks. Rising up against God is pure foolishness. Don't go there. You need to be warned, you you kings and rulers of the earth and, and nations too. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, worship this God instead of rebelling against Him. Not only that, but reconsider very carefully what you do with His Son, the Messiah. Instead of slapping Him with your rebellion, you should be on your face before His feet. You should be kissing Him. Kissing His feet. Showing Him the respect and the honor, the homage that He deserves. And if you won't do that, David says, I'm going to tell you what's coming. He will be angry and you will be destroyed in the way. His wrath can flare up just like that. And it's not an unrighteous anger. 
He has every reason, every just and good reason to be angry with rebels. This is not the meek and mild Jesus. This is the Lion of Judah who overturned the tables in the temple. This is the Holy One of God, the righteous judge. Don't want to mess with Him. But isn't that exactly what we do so often? Look into your heart, brothers and sisters. How impressed are we really with King Jesus? Think about all the ways that that we, you, I, we resist the reign of Christ. We often compartmentalize our lives and we live in a double-minded or even triple or quadruple-minded way. We've got our, our self-love and our guilty pride. And with that, don't we, don't we rehash the parts of Judas and Pilate? Psalm 2 speaks to us, the, the, the people of God in this way too. Like I mentioned, we can easily see the lie being swallowed on, on the internet or in historical events like the French Revolution. The reality is we're no, in no position to pat ourselves in the, on the back. Let our hearts break when they see this. And not only let, it, let our hearts break, let them flee, run to the cross of Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's the way David ends this psalm. The Son of God, He is and He will be a terror to those who go on living in sin. But to all who repent and believe, He is a refuge. He is a safe place in the storm. While the wind and the waves of His wrath buffet those outside, we who are in Him are like Noah and his family safe in the ark. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven for all our rebellion and double-mindedness. Forgiven for all the times we have thought to be our own people and have, have not seen ourselves as the subjects of King Jesus. Just pretend for a moment that, I, that He's not the King and I can just do my own thing. Fleeing to the cross, you can be forgiven. Forgiven for all the times that our loyalty to the King has waned and we desired to live apart from Him. The psalm truly ends on a Gospel note when it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's the Gospel. And knowing that Gospel and, and being thankful for it, let's go forward from here and, and live under the reign of our King. The King whom we love and adore. Let's announce His reign wherever and whenever we can. Let's believe that living under King Jesus is the way of wisdom, the way of blessing. Let's steer clear of the, the way of foolishness, for it is truly the way of death and destruction. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to His feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore His praises sing. Praise Him, praise Him. Praise the everlasting King. Indeed. Let's pray.
Yahweh, our God. We thank You for revealing to us foolishness and wisdom this morning in Your Word. And we praise You for Your Son, the Messiah who reigns on high at Your right hand. Lord Jesus, we adore You. We adore You for Your good and perfect rule over heaven and earth. We adore You for calling us to come to You. We thank You, O God, for the promises of Your Word, those promises that were made and have been fulfilled. And we thank You for those promises which are yet to be fulfilled, those promises which we can be sure will come to pass. We thank You that looking to Christ, we can know ourselves to be in a safe place. We ask that You continue to shower Your mercy and grace upon us in Him. Teach us, Lord God, to evermore cast our rebellion aside and to constantly flee to the cross of Christ our Savior. We know that there's no hope for us besides in His blood and suffering, in His death and resurrection. All our hope and help is bound up in Him. And help us, Lord, to not only say that with our mouths, but to believe it in our hearts and to show that we believe it with our lives. And Father, we also pray for the nations and their rulers. We pray that they would not rise up against You, but that they would submit to Your rule and the rule of Your Son. And we pray particularly for our own country, for Canada, that our rulers and fellow citizens would, like us, kiss the Son and recognize Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Recognize Him and accept Him as the blessed Savior sent from You. We pray for the glory of Your name and in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.